Hello, Cheryl Manfredonia here with an hour of sacred music, looking at Gregorian chant this hour, uh, listening to some examples of chant and how it has taken shape over the years and has influenced other composers, um, almost looking at the the roots of several pieces that, that they stem from going way back to the early centuries. Plain chant, the modal chant of early Christian and continuing Catholic worship and its derivatives, is often known as Gregorian chant, named after Pope Gregory the Great. St. Gregory, to whom the attempt at standardization of the chant in the late 6th century is attributed. In the mid-1990s, chant suddenly sold millions of CDs and tapes. Gregorian chant lasted from about the year 400 to 1000. There are no parallels to chant in the history of music in terms of its longevity importance and influence. As beautiful as it is, however, when people first hear it, they are often puzzled by it. Chant is simply a single melody sung in unison to a Latin text. But why this resurgent in popularity? I think the reason for this repopularity in our world of ever-growing complexity and speed We develop a hunger for the uncomplicated, the unpretentious, the unadorned. Our first selection, Attende Domine. Three, two, four, three. 
the beautiful simplicity of Gregorian chant, simply the single melody, perhaps sung by one voice, perhaps sung in unison, as you heard in some of these sections at Tende Domino, we had the men's choir. There is no harmony, no accompaniment, no strong rhythm or accent. It is dictated by the phrasing of the text. In other words, there is nothing to hide behind in this simple skeletal music. It is the most straightforward, transparent music of all time. Its beauty in is in its innocent simplicity. The revival of Gregorian chant recordings makes it very difficult to select a favorite. The decision usually simply involves such choices as large choir versus small choir, and a cathedral ambiance versus studio acoustics. I can say the Benedictine monks have chosen an admiral path between these two extremes. They record with a moderately sized choir in a large church, and they carefully place the microphones close enough to the voices to produce yet an intimate sound. Let's listen to more examples of some chant. Uh, We hear the Ubi Caritas in Holy Week, sometimes Holy Thursday. Uh, First we'll go with a chant version, and then we will go to... Something a little bit more familiar, perhaps, to you. We hear the Teze chants more often these days in the churches, and we'll go to Ubi Caritas as set by uh, Father Jacques Bertier from the Teze community. Yeah. 
Where charity and love are found, God himself is there. Ubi caritas et amor, ubi caritas Deus ibi est. It was the Bishop of Constantinople, way back in the year 450, who proclaimed that psalmody and chant calms the emotions, awakes courage, relieves grief, moderates the passions, drives away cares, consoles in affliction, leads sinner to repentance, provokes piety, teaches love of one's neighbor, praises charity, and gives patience, banishes evil spirits, preaches the future, sanctifies the priest, and affirms the church. We go now to the Ubi Caritas as set in the Teze community style of chant.
we'll go now to an instrumental version of chant. People so intrigued by these beautiful, simple melodies. We have a lovely CD. It's an instrumental, um, contemplative CD by Jerry Gallipo. And he takes the tantum ergo. The tantum ergo, of course, being part of our Eucharistic adoration and the reposition of the Blessed Sacrament. And just does an instrumental version. Notice the freestyle. We don't have rhythms here. It's it's very much um, dictated by the rhythm of the text. Now, in this case, we're going to an instrumental version. We're not hearing the uh, the sung verses, but the style is still there. The free, the relaxation of uh, phrasing, and it's a beautiful setting. The tantum ergo. Jerry Gallipo, with his piano improvisations, actually worked together a medley, the two familiar melodies used for the tantum ergo during our Eucharistic adoration and benediction. We'd like to go to a more modern composer, um, at least modern in, compared to Gregorian chant era. We're going to go to a setting by Anton Bruckner during the Romantic era, and let's see what he has done with, again, tracing the roots of these ancient melodies and these ancient texts. He, too, took uh, the text, the 
the lyrics of Tantum Ergo, and he said it in a little bit more uh, modern style. Anton Bruckner was born 1824, died 1896, and uh, was a, a church-going religious gentleman and very inspired by these ancient texts after attending choir school at St. Florian's Abbey. He was a chorister, studied organ, piano, violin, and theory. He held several teaching posts before he really dedicated his life to composition. Of course, he's known for large-scale symphonic works, but he only composed sacred music. Everything he did was with God in mind. This Tantum Ergo was composed uh, between 1843 and 1868. It kept being redone and restructured. He wanted to get it so perfect to have a tribute to our Almighty God. So let's listen to the beautiful choral version of Anton Bruckner's Tantum Ergo. Tantum Ergo, as set by Anton Bruckner. 
Gregorian chant was a practical and functional music to be used in worship services. The two primary services are the offices and the mass. So much has been written about them that we need only to explore the most important aspects that relate directly to music. Uh, Most of us know little about life in a functioning monastery, let alone the monastic life of the Middle Ages. Yet those very monks were the sole preservers of everything we know about early sacred music. These dedicated Christians lived a highly structured existence eight times every day. They worshiped the Lord together in song. Specific chants and hymns were written for each of these canonical hours, otherwise known as offices, matins, louds. That was at sunrise. Prime was about 6 a.m. Terce, about 9 a.m. At noon, sext, nones, approximately 3 p.m. Vespers at sunset. We hear more about Vespers than any of the other offices. And then Compline, the evening or immediately following Vespers. All these offices represent dozens of beautiful chants. And within them, uh, they could also sing hymns in front of the Blessed Sacrament. That leads us to our next musical selection, Adoro Te Devote, a Eucharistic text traditionally attributed to St. Thomas Aquinas. Adorate Devote, as sung by the Cathedral 
Singers out of Chicago, conducted by Richard Prue, and that is his edition and arrangement, of course, in the young days of the early monastery, uh, monastic days. They, of course, would be singing that in unison, not with a little bit of harmony that you heard in that two-part arrangement. And we can just imagine that these medieval monks probably sang more in any given day than any other professional singer of the 20th century, as we heard from uh, the offices where they sing seven, eight, nine times a day. Let's take the same text, Adorate Devote, as now we can trace it back to its original roots. But many years later, in the mid-1700s, in Vienna, Johann Michael Haydn set this Adorate Devote uh, in, a, in a choral arrangement with accompaniment, and it would have been sung in, at the high masses in the cathedrals in the mid-1700s. We'll go now to a mass setting, specifically the Gregorian chant for a requiem mass. This special mass for the dead has a specific place 
in music history. Its dramatic texts have inspired composers to create sensational works of almost operatic drama, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries. But again, we're tracing the roots. Where does it come from? We're going to go to the very first Gregorian chant setting of um, a couple of sections of our Requiem Mass. Let us listen to, it will be very brief, um, in Paradisium, uh, in Paradise. And this is the short Gregorian chant, the very simple melody, and then we'll see how that That has influenced composers in the years to come. In Paradisum, the Gregorian chant influenced Gabriel Faure in France. He lived 1845 to 1924, so approximately 1885, Faure sets this Catholic requiem, and he creates a, a heavenly work, almost weightless in its French simplicity, trying to retain the simplicity of the Gregorian chant. The orchestra used in the work is rather spar- sparse, without violins, um, and with little playing from the wind sections. The choral writing evokes the sound of distant angelic choirs, and several of the melodies are rooted and still retain their Gregorian chant melodies. The result is ethereal, innocent, portraying a childlike faith. Gabriel Faure himself said, It has been said that my requiem does not express the fear of death. Someone has called it a lullaby of death. Let's listen to his setting of In Paradisium.
I think you would agree with me that Foray's music reflects his view of death as a happy deliverance, an aspiration towards happiness above, certainly a very heavenly example. Let's go to another portion of this Requiem Mass, the chant, the Dies Irae, the Day of Wrath. Uh, This particular chant is rather lengthy. It's, It's seven minutes, so we will not listen to the whole thing. My purpose of showing you this is so you can hear the initial uh, two phrases and get a little bit of the melody, if you can capture some of this melody and retain it, because it will be followed by a, um, a symphonic version of the original chant. So we have our original chant melody from the early centuries, and then many years later, Hector Berlioz, who wrote huge symphonic works, writes the Symphonie Fantastique, and in his fifth movement, he draws from this Gregorian chant, the Dies Irae, and incorporates it into his symphonic movement five of the Symphonie Fantastique. So let's listen to first um, a section of the chant, Dies Irae, immediately followed by the instrumental Hector Berlioz.
Okay, rather exciting. That is, if you wanted to explore that a little bit further, that movement five from Symphony Fantastique by Berlioz uh, is, again, rather lengthy, 10 or 15 minutes for that one movement alone, but you can hear the the melody that is taken all the way back from the roots of our Gregorian chant. We have uh, a chant composer, a woman composer, Hildegard von Bingen, perhaps a familiar name to you um, in your attempt to, to try to recall and maybe name some of these Gregorian chant composers. There were not that many of them. Um, her quotation, if I can share that with you, is let all the heavens hear it and praise God's Lamb in great harmony. She uh, wrote poetry. She is the composer of several chants, and she did leave a monastic life. This was um, in the year 1000 leading up to 1179. She rose to the position of Mother Superior and even founded a convent where she served as abbess. Let's listen to some chants by Hildegard von Bingen, most of which have only become well-known in the late 20th century. First, we have a Kyrie, and we'll talk about that after we listen to that example, and then the Laus Trinitati.
These two chants by Hildegard von Bingen gives me an opportunity to explain a couple of different ways you may hear the chant, especially in the Kyrie and a little bit in the Praise to the Trinity. We hear what is known as melismatic chant. One syllable is sung over many notes. And uh, on the other side of that, on the opposite side of the coin, you could say the syllabic chant, every syllable has its own note. But more so, this Kyrie and the uh, Laus Trinitati is the melismatic chant where you could almost lose sight of what was the syllable I'm on because nine or ten notes later, then you change to the next syllable. So there's the two different types of chant uh, if you want to be a little bit of an expert and impress your friends um, very very often we hear the Gregorian chant, we could re- recognize it, but we don't really get into a lot of the details and really listen with a critical ear next time and see if you can hear the difference between a syllabic chant, every syllable with its own note, or the melismatic where one syllable may be stretched over several notes in a row. Let us go now to another beautiful chant setting. This is coming to us from the gradual from Holy Thursday as we're talking about reading the office and certain prayers for certain days. It is Christus factus est. Christ became obedient for us unto death, even to death upon a cross.
The Church Fathers quickly grasped the evangelistic possibilities of sacred music. We attribute the spread of Christianity to these early chants. How powerful. Music was for the masses of new Christians what books were to the few scholars of the time. Missionaries had taken the simple, beautiful melodies, the Christian teachings of chant, to every corner of Europe. Imagine a group of singers energetically intoning the celebration of Easter for assemblies of new Christians who were thrilled to hear that Christ is risen. Picture a group of peasants hearing the Christmas story in song for the first time. We just heard Christus Factus Est, the Holy Thursday, a text based on Philippians chapter 2. This has inspired settings over the years, throughout the centuries. Let's listen to one now that might not be as familiar in the mid-17th century by Leonardo Leo. Again, Christus Factus Est.
You can see why St. Augustine would have said, in uh, if you've read his book, Confessions of St. Augustine, he did write a good deal about sacred music, and in that book he writes, I wept at the beauty of your hymns and canticles and was powerfully moved at the sweet sound of your church's singing. These sounds flowed into my ears, and the truth streamed into my heart so that my feeling and my devotion overflowed. The tears ran from my eyes, and I was happy in them. How beautiful the words describing this gorgeous music. It was the great theologian Athanasius, uh, even before St. Augustine, in, in the early year of 300, felt so strongly about singing that he insisted his followers at midnight arise and sing praise to the Lord thy God. And the scholar Jerome, around that same time period, heading into the year 400, added, Sing to God, not with the voice, but with the heart. And that's what we hear in this beautiful Gregorian chant. Um, Actually, uh, some of the most beautiful music ever written, and certainly withstanding the test of time. We'll leave you today with the familiar melody, Pange Lingua. And it is a single flute, a single flute line, certainly Um, beautiful and simple in its presentation. Uh, Enjoy your week, and thank you for tuning in.